Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. My name is Tom, you may know me as the creator of Like Stories of Old, and I'm joined by fellow video essayist Thomas Flight to talk about Michael Curtis's classic film Casablanca. Thomas, I feel Casablanca is one of those movies that you encounter pretty early on if you're passionate about movies. I think you've seen it. You already saw it like a long time ago, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about revisiting that, revisiting it now, like a bit later in your film passion career, so to say? I don't remember much. Like, I don't feel like my opinion shifted much with this one. I, f- I think I felt pretty mm-hmm. similar to it the first time I watched it to what I felt now. I think it's it's an interesting film to approach because it is one of these that's at the top of a lot of lists. It's touted as the best screenplay by certain people, one of the best films of all time by a decent amount, a certain amount of people. It's just like a bonafide classic in a lot of ways. And approaching those kinds of movies, I always find to be interesting, especially like I think Mm -hmm. for our generation where we like this is an old enough classic that we didn't quite grow up watching it. It wasn't like that would have been a time when this was on TV all the time. And there were people who like grew up just seeing it and it was a part of their life. That wasn't really the case for me, mm-hmm. and I doubt it was for a lot of people our age. But like you said, as soon as you get into film, it's there, and so you start watching mm-hmm. Citizen Kane, Casablanca, all these movies that have all this renown. And sometimes you watch them and you feel you're like, oh, I immediately get why this one is so well-known on the lists, all that kind of thing. And sometimes it's a little bit more of a process of like puzzling out what made it significant Mm -hmm. and trying to understand contextually what it was. So yeah, I think it's interesting to look at some of these movies in hindsight and discuss them through Mm -hmm. our current lens, kind of try to evaluate them and see how we feel about them. Had you seen it before as well? What was your relationship to this? Yeah, I think the same as you. It's one of those movies that you watch like when I was in my late teenager years, I think. Like I just got like a serious or more serious interest in movies and I started exploring cinema history and then quickly you come to like Casablanca and as you mentioned, Citizen Kane, uh, 12 Angry Men, all those classic movies. And yeah, for me, there was more the distinction that some of the older movies I can still appreciate like for their immediate effect. And there's other ones that are more like, um, you know, I can see why they were good at that time but i only appreciate them now as more as a sort of museum relic (laughs) right yeah or some some artifact of history that moved cinema history in some direction but that isn't that important to me like yeah anymore now like that's it it doesn't have that immediate emotional effect on me or i don't feel a strong direct connection to it I think Casablanca for me is sort of in the middle. There are older movies from that period that I feel, or that still have a stronger impact on me directly. With Casablanca, there's some moments that I still really love the the atmosphere and the way it creates this kind of sentimental, but also a more like a romantic vibe that I found really interesting and really immersive. Um, But at the same time, it also... There's some parts of it that feel more 
old movie-ish. Like, it feels a bit dated. Yeah. Especially, I forgot about that introduction that really feels more like a propaganda movie. <laughs> right, right. It's that you, you get this shot of a globe and it explains the second, or like some part of the Second World War where uh, they explain that uh, when people want to flee from Europe to the freedom of America, then they right. have to go to Casablanca to get the visa, to get to uh, Lisbon in Portugal, and then go to the United States. And you then get this whole... Uh, scene in the with just like shots from the city and that's something that i was more interested in now the way it sets up this whole place before it mentions or even introduces like any of the characters yeah yeah there's something i like about it but it also watching it now it feels distinct from the vibe of the rest of the movie that feels more like this romantic film noirish almost exotic story and the first one of the uh, that whereas that first part just feels like we're introducing the movie folks right and yeah yeah it feels more like the the 1930s era whereas the rest of the film is more maybe 1950s era or something like there's a bit of it feels like there's some discrepancy there but uh yeah more generally i think it's it's interesting now to look at how this movie is positioned within its era because it came out at, in the midst of the Second World War. It obviously deals with the Second World War. so, But I don't think it was ever, or it's really seen as a propaganda piece generally, even though I'm not sure about that, though. I'm not sure if you've... That's not the impression that I've gotten reading uh, you know, about the critical reception and, and those kinds of things. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it... It obviously has a certain perspective on the war and America's place within the war, but um, and and it was specifically rushed to release because of an invasion of North Africa happened, um, and so mm -hmm. they were like they were like, oh, this is good timing for pu putting this movie out. There was definitely a conscious attempt to like lean on sentiment about the war in order like for this movie to play well and you know promote and that kind of a thing but yeah i don't i don't know that the that there's a perception of it as being propagandistic mm -hmm. necessarily at least in america yeah there's definitely movies that are more directly and explicitly propaganda pieces and i'm not saying casablanca is one of those it's just but i do think there is any a, a you can see how the uh, how it's coming out at that time affected the movie a little bit, yeah, yeah. which I think is just makes it all the more interesting to dive into now, just to see what that may or not uh, say about the themes or the characters. Um, because I think aside from the war, it still is a really solid and timeless story. It's it kind of feels like a classic. Uh, adventure story in some way mm -hmm. in where you have this reluctant hero who is drawn into this adventure that he initially doesn't want to be a part of but he finds like some purpose in it anyways and i even felt it was a little bit of a proto version for james bond in some ways because i one thing i always like to do when i'm watching old movies like this is i like to imagine that if they are made today exactly the same like what kind right. of actors would be in it and i was trying to think of an actor that could replace humphrey bogart in this one and daniel the craig the only one that i <laughs> or exactly yeah. yeah the one i came up with was i think daniel craig but i'm not sure if that was because specifically because of 
who he is as an actor, right. but more so because who he portrayed as James Bond, which was this kind of fits in the same category in terms of what kind of characters they represent. Yeah. I also thought maybe George Clooney when he was still a little bit younger, but yeah. Clooney could probably do it. It's hard, like, there's not that many modern Hollywood actors <laughs> who have the same kind of brooding, sort of mm -hmm. like gruff brooding aspect that Bogart had. I mean, there's people like Ryan Gosling doing stuff like Drive where he's like, but he's yeah. more of like a softer version of that, if that makes any sense. I don't know. He's not quite mm -hmm. as like... Maybe he'll age into it. Yeah, I think yeah. Humphrey Bogart was a little bit older at the time he filmed this but i'm not yeah, sure i think so so maybe but but yeah i get what you're saying yeah. maybe old old ryan gosling can <laughs> yeah. can uh, do the Casablanca yeah. remake that that'll inevitably mm -hmm. come around <laughs> to some of uh, what you've talked about i think there's there's a lot of interesting stuff there uh i think like the reception for me you know viewing this movie now I think I agree. It kind of falls in the middle to me. It's very entertaining. It's very entertaining. Mm -hmm. I think it holds up well in that regard. Like it's not boring or uninteresting to watch. I think the screenplay is actually really good in that it nicely controls the how it reveals information and the timing of information. And, you know, there's a lot of witty lines and you know, it's just mm -hmm. sharply paced and structured. And I was thinking about that. You, you talked about that opening segment where it's kind of setting up the mood, the place in the world. And mm -hmm. I agree that that stylistically feels a little distinct. But in terms yeah. of like yeah. the writing of it, it takes so long to get to even introducing the main character, Sam. Mm -hmm. And then from there to introduce like Ilsa or so Rick, sorry, not Sam. I think um, Rick, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It it takes a long time to introduce Rick and then even longer to introduce Ilsa. And there's all this mm -hmm. stuff that happens at the beginning that feels just kind of like stuff that is establishing the general environment of Casablanca. But then a lot of those details end up coming back around and playing a role in the plot in some way, mm -hmm. which is nice. And I think it's well structured and managed in that in that sense. But yeah, it also it also has this feeling, and this is an interesting thing to untangle for me. In a some in some ways, it's like an archetype of this kind of classic movie where there's like elements of it that feel like such a trope. Mm -hmm. But I'm unable to distinguish at this point if it was a trope when it was made, or if it was, oh, yeah. or if it's it feels like a trope to me now because this was such an influential classic movie, and and you know it's just echoed into everything like everything since then but it mm -hmm. does feel i've read some critics who like said it had like more corn than the state of iowa like it was perceived <laughs> as like a very corny yeah. and melodramatic but also sincere like it's like an over-the-top version of this like classic hollywood like you know oh they're gonna look into each other's faces and say you know like mm -hmm. dramatic lines and you know, a single tear rolls down her cheek at one point. It's like <laughs> just the perfect image. And that's both like ridiculous and over the top, but also satisfying. And it reminded me in some ways of like watching Top Gun or something, which you just mentioned you rewatch. Mm -hmm. But it's just like, yeah, it's corny. It's ridiculous. But it's also very sincere, like and entertaining. And all that aside, I want to dive into maybe some of the deeper 
underlying themes about war and neutrality and getting caught up in love and all yeah. of these things that are present in this movie as well. Yeah. What would be a good place to start here? I think just for those who might not have seen the movie, we can do like, yeah. Uh, I explained like the basic setup. We have Casablanca as this neutral safe haven for people who want to escape from Europe and go to the United States eventually. And there we meet uh, Rick who runs a bar and who is kind of aimless as a character. He just wants to run the bar. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the war, doesn't want to pick any sides. So he's on this unoccupied Morocco, like uh, which at the time was for, uh, colonized by uh, the French. Yeah. And at some point, there's two characters. One is named uh, Victor Laszlo, who is this wanted fugitive by the Gestapo, who flees to Casablanca, hoping to get a transit to the United States. And he is joined by his wife, Ilsa, who also has a romantic history with Rick. And they kind of, uh, they're obviously chased by the Gestapo, who's also there to search for Victor Laszlo, obviously. And then they, it's kind of, surprisingly intricate as far as the political and the power balances go because yeah. they're on unoccupied space. So the Nazis technically do not have any power to or jurisdiction to arrest anyone there. So including Victor and at some point they even talk to each other without or, or with both of them knowing they, there cannot be any action that's taken. But at the same time, the Gestapo is also pressuring the French sheriff or some kind of like some kind of captain police captain renault he's like corrupt you know he he's sort of yeah he, he yeah he's sort of corrupt and he he's kind of sympathetic with the with the nazis it uh mm -hmm. to some extent but but yeah he he's yeah. unwilling to just like he can't just waltz in there and be like well the nazis want to arrest victor so i'm gonna arrest him he mm -hmm. needs some kind of pretense for doing so he seems kind of willing to like try to set up a pretense even but he definitely mm -hmm. needs that that pretense yeah yeah so there's this very like delicate political balance mm -hmm. yeah I, I was surprised by that at first when the the police captain when he welcomes the gestapo or the, the uh, i'm not sure what the strasser i think his name was yeah the one who plays the Nazi general sort of or the the boss character let's say it like that and the police captain he's like oh unoccupied friends welcomes you which to me felt weirdly sympathetic towards uh, someone whose country just occupied yours right in mainland Europe but he then later also explains in Casablanca I'm the master of my own fate so he might uh, he might still resemble Rick in that sense that he feels yeah. like oh I've I've got this little patch of unoccupied space. I'm neutral, and uh, here I can be. I can decide what, what, or what's what, and I can basically do whatever I want, including like some light corruption, maybe. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> He's also seen cheating at uh, Rick's. He has like a little casino attached to his cafe or something like that, and it's implied that he, um, that the police captain uh, gets gets the occasional winning hand. Surprisingly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Things are a little stacked in his favor yeah. at Rick's, I think, which may pay mm -hmm. off at the end. Uh, spoilers, yeah. I guess. But <laughs> but so, yeah, and that that's kind of the setting that Rick gets dragged into. And yeah, uh, yeah that, that's, I think, the if you can distill the thematic question to its essence, I think it's about 
the kind of the cost and dynamics of neutrality and maybe political apathy in a time where you are kind of forced out of your isolationism, yes. I think. Yeah, isolationism. Uh, where you're kind of forced to play, to make a move when you kind of don't want to. Yeah. I think it's even, there's one quote, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but there's some character who explains to Rick that isolationism is not a practical position in that time and space. And I think that's what Rick also slowly comes to realize that he cannot be an innocent bystander or just a neutral observer to everything that's unfolding because he's inevitably has ties to whatever goes on in 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 whatever direction and he's he's also revealed later on as a someone who used to be less of a cynic yes and who was kind of a fighter for the underdog but now not anymore because he had this he had his heart broken by uh ilsa who he then which is then another confrontation that happens it's not just his cynicism about the politics but also his personal cynicism because he had his heart broken and he wants or he basically didn't want any kind of uh connection or attachment after that it seems right so yeah and that's for me also where the more subtle propaganda-ish elements come in where it kind of it's not distinctly a propaganda piece but it does show a character who's cynical and uh, apathetic about the war and then who at the end becomes a patriot like a patriot he's like declared to be oh you're a patriot after all right and uh, so i think there's some undeniable pro-war-ish elements there at least for in the in the context of that time that it kind of maybe wanted to or not not even a i'm not even sure if i would say it's a deliberate attempt to motivate people politically but just in maybe an indirect or implied effect where those who have no opinion about the war or no feel no connection to it they might be moved after all to to stand in support of it or to come to realize that they might share the ideals that are being fought over or or simply that they just uh, cannot stand on the sidelines of this that they right. have a bone in this fight either way and so yeah that's kind of what uh, my initial thoughts were on the movie thematically. This is a really interesting discussion because I was reading about this movie and trying to understand as much as I could the context surrounding mm-hmm. it, you know, because I, I know the history of World War II, but like it's enough removed for me that there are pieces of this puzzle that, and exactly when this movie was coming out and those kinds of things that... uh it's good to update on. But one of the things that I saw that I found interesting was that it was based on a play and one of the modifications they made moving it to the screenplay adaptation was changing the timing of the story to happen so that it was taking place before America's involvement in, in World War II. Oh, and yeah. they they did that specifically to try to make Rick's character more sympathetic because mm-hmm. they wanted his neutrality to feel more motivated and understandable, I guess, to the average American. So I think that says something interesting about the context in America that this movie was moving into, where it was like, mm-hmm. I think you're right to see that this movie has a specific perspective and that it's putting forward in in the context of the war that you know certainly you like you could read as propagandistic but i think 
the mm. distinction I would make is I don't know that that was like the goal. I don't know they they were trying to get that yeah. message across so much as it would be that like it, the environment in America, it would just be assumed that it was by the vast majority of people mm -hmm. that it was right to be involved at by the time this movie came out that like getting involved in the war was the right thing to do. And so the situation that Bogart was in, it was it's more of like a moral dilemma than it is mm -hmm. like. But I guess that in that sense, you know, that is kind of part of the propaganda is like, oh, the, mm -hmm. the right thing to do within the context of the movie, as it's assumed, is like not remain neutral, like remaining neutral is seen as like, oh, he's dragged out of his neutrality by love and by sentiment and like you know all of these other things and that's kind of a good that's a good thing that's character development mm -hmm. and in that sense yeah it's painting neutrality and that kind of stuff with a very mm -hmm. sort of like yeah. potentially negative lens i think for a lot of people watching this it it feels fine looking back on it because world war ii is one of america's been messed up in a lot of you know sketchy circumstances but world war ii mm -hmm. at least for most americans yeah. is like the least ambiguous like versus that's the, the germans one. yeah that's the good one it's the least ambiguous <laughs> like conflict where it was like oh yeah that you know we should we we went after the nazis that was that yeah. one was fine hmm. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm definitely uh just to add a small point to what you're saying about it being uh the propaganda part it's it, to me it's not that it necessarily was a deliberate attempt to right. push america's cultural uh like collective um, mindset towards a certain direction that's pro-war, but it's more so because the, uh, at the end of the day, it's it's still a pretty timeless story. Like yeah, the, yeah. The journey from a man who's cynical to one who's not so. That's that's that that's a very archetypal story. But it's just when you tell a story like that in that specific setting during that specific yeah, time, yeah. It, it it just gets that inevitable extra layer of uh, meaning that right. Uh, it's hard to separate from it afterwards. Um, yeah. Because even, like, I agree that you can look at this movie now, or today it doesn't feel that propaganda-ish as some other World War II movies that came out during that time, because it, uh, beneath it there's still that uh, story that feels timeless that could be applied yes. and reapplied to new settings and new situations today, and therefore it doesn't feel, oh, this was pushing that specific political agenda in that specific or that specific time and place. But yeah, it, it's still, maybe it says something about the archetype that it, right. yeah. that it always applies to some specific context. Cause it's easy to tell a story that just tells you like, oh, don't be such so apathetic, be right, committed right. and connected yeah. to whatever is be going engaged. on in the world. But then, <laughs> yeah, but then you inevitably need to have some real world thing to engage that message yeah. too and so yeah and in that sense it might be inherent to that kind of storytelling to be also political to some extent but um, yeah there yeah. are some it's worth noting there are some people who read whose interpretation of the film they read it as being like kind of a coded story about like america's getting involved in world war ii so like they see like rick kind of as being uh, Eisenhower, I guess, was the president at the time deciding whether or not to get involved. And so like his battle with remaining neutral versus joining the war. And mm -hmm. I guess one of the one of the pieces of proof for this reading, which I think is kind of funny, is that Casablanca translates 
to English as White House. Oh, and so yeah. you have like Eisenhower in the White House <laughs> deciding if he's going to, you know, get involved in World War II. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if that's actually mm. what's going on here. I think like the broader themes Seems do like align. <laughs> yeah, the broader themes do align. But from what mm -hmm. I know about the production of this movie and how many people were involved uh, and the way it was written, I doubt it, they were sitting down and being like, we're going to make a metaphor for, the, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was just like, that's a theme <laughs> that was very relevant to people at the time, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it applies, it applies very broadly. Yeah. But yeah, it's an undeniably political film and you can't, you can't remove it really from its political context. But I think you're right in saying that the story that's underneath that those political the political context in which it resides it is like is very timeless is very archetypal it's it's about mm -hmm. kind of there's a love triangle and there's mm -hmm. you know subterfuge and you know convoluted there's an amazing moment where rick rick has these two papers so ilsa and ilsa and victor show up and mm -hmm. we find out about the past romance between Ilsa and Rick we and he has these papers that will uh, can allow anybody to leave the whole the whole conceit is that in order to the Germans are basically like Victor's not going to be able to leave because if he tries to we'll have means we'll have grounds for arresting him they know he's going to try to leave mm -hmm. and they know if he if he buys illegal papers they'll be able to arrest him and so rick is like the one person who can like actually has the means to get them out of there but he's he's in love with yeah. ilsa they have this past like all this stuff so this is all going down we're, we're finding about out about all of this and there's this amazing sequence of events that unfolds where both ilsa and victor come to rick separately and are like use the papers like you know leave me and Victor comes to Rick and he's like, you and Ilsa leave and just get to safety. Like, use your papers to get us, get both out of here. I'll stay. I'll figure a way out. Ilsa kind of does the same thing. Where it's, it's like, you know, just get Victor out of here. I'll stay with you. Like, whatever. They're both making this, like, sacrificial move for each other's safety. And that story, that little mm -hmm. story of, like, two people simultaneously, like, making the same sacrifice for each other is, like, just like a classic old like you know there's that yeah. i don't know if you've ever heard that story about like the there's the guy who like he's like doing something to buy a hairbrush for the girl and the girl like cuts her hair to buy him a gift and it's like they both cancel it <laughs> anyway it, that's just like a tale as old as time basically yeah so those elements run very deep in this movie hmm. yeah yeah I, I think it's also uh it's just such a Beneath those, as I said at the beginning, there's also just that very typical heroic journey with Rick, yes, which I yeah. think is also what contributes to this movie being or having transcended its kind of time and place and its uh, potential characterization as, oh, this was just a, a war movie from the war at the time. Because you really have that uh, sense of if you just strip it from all its external elements it's just like the story of a person who um pretty much does nothing and means nothing even to his like compared to his own potential and even his own desires like this if you have if you go back to like the, the joseph campbell stuff we, he talks about following your bliss and following right. like some kind of path that leads you to whatever kind of fulfillment and you can clearly get a sense that he is someone else but he has rejected a life he's someone who is 
fled away from uh, not just responsibility, but also just his own personal sense of purpose and satisfaction. He kind of seems annoyed at the beginning at everyone and everything like he does what he does but he also doesn't really do or doesn't want to do what he's doing he's yeah he he doesn't seem to feel much enjoyment or fulfillment from running that bar or being there at all i'm not sure if it's even specified why he's not just in the united states instead of in casablanca because he he could just travel home right There's some moment where it talks about him escaping something. It's like hinted at, but he's ran away from America for some reason. Uh, And I think they I think they reveal that at one point, but I don't Mm. I don't remember. Yeah, I think in that sense, Casablanca also forms this kind of purgatory place. Yes. For everyone who comes there, it's either a passing thing or at least it's meant to be this passing place but rick stays there for some reason and it also kind of symbolically hints at him being stuck like not being anywhere in particular and that's when you get his whole heroic journey which he obviously refuses at first as is traditional in that in that that little circle but then he does eventually come to terms with his past and his uh his old ideals and his potential to to recommit himself or become re-engaged in the world and in the, the troubles that it has and just just become a more fulfilled and purposeful person by the end of it. So yeah, in in that sense, I think it's really... I, I can understand why it's still a classic today and why it's not just a museum piece from wartime movies yeah, yeah. sort of thing. But yeah. They handle that unraveling, I think, really well where... You kind of know that's the you know that's the journey he's on, but they do a good job of kind of stringing you along. Like I remember both times watching it, it's it was long enough between the two. I kind of a little bit forgot how it ended. Both times watching it, I remember being like, I wasn't sure right up until the end what it, what he was gonna do. But then once he does it, it doesn't feel unmotivated. So it's it's framed well enough that you you feel that his decision to change by the end is motivated but still while he's he kind of he's lying to different people to set up their escape and mm-hmm. it, it leaves enough doubt that you're like is he you know who is who's getting mm-hmm. played in this scenario is he going to do the selfish thing and try to like set himself up with ilsa or like yeah. you know just arrange things so that he can you know whatever you there's enough doubt and ambiguity left there that you're not quite sure which way he's going to go right up until the end. But then once it does unfold, you're like, okay, yeah, that feels, you know, that does feel Mm -hmm. motivated, which I think is, that's a layer of that kind of journey and arc that is hard to, hard to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. Because a story like that can be really predictable. Like you meet cynical man, you know, he's going to be do a 180 by the end of it he's because he's gonna soften up or like open his heart again and so yeah i I agree that the movie does a really clever job of of setting up two potential paths like there's his more the romantic path it's just him and ilsa running off together and victor going off to keep fighting the good fight and then there's the, the, the path that does happen is that he kind of sacrifices himself to allow victor and Ilsa to escape, which I guess is the more noble option of the two, or the least, the more, the most selfless one. He's sacrificing the ideal of their romance for this yeah. ideal of like Vic, the good that Victor might be able to do yeah. in the war. 
I guess in that sense, there's where the propaganda comes in. Yeah. <laughs> the fight is always a higher cost than yeah, yeah. the wife. <laughs> but it's also like the, the thing I forgot about at the end, I, I remembered how it turned out that I knew he was going to do like the bait and switch and uh, send Ilsa and Victor away instead of going with Ilsa himself. Yeah. But I forgot about him shooting the Nazi or the oh, Gestapo yes. officer. Yeah. And that's when I thought like, oh, wow, he that like... You can do the bait and switch and he can still go on about his day as before. But when right. he shot that guy, like that's when I thought like, oh shit, he's really committed now. Like yeah. he's, <laughs> and that's also when the police captain, the French one, uh, he comments like, uh, or that's when he comments like, oh, you're the, now you're the true patriot. Yes. And that's like, okay, he's not just making a decision to like, he's not making a personal decision. He's, he's now like an active political agent in right. this whole fight and he's, his, his life's not going to be the same. He cannot go home, I think, at least, after shooting an officer on foreign soil. I'm not sure how that works le legally, but... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. How do you feel about that ending? To me, the one the one thing that feels a little bit forced towards the end there is the Renault, the French officer, kind of being mm -hmm. like, oh, it's he, he decides to sort of like save Rick at the end and yeah. be like round up the usual suspects. You know, he doesn't... He doesn't say that Rick was the one who shot the Nazi. That's when the other police people show up, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Rick <laughs> Rick shoots the Nazi and the other police show up and instead and Renault instead of being like it was Rick, he did it. He's like, "Oh, round up the usual suspects, you know, yeah. like we'll we'll figure it out." Feels a bit farcical when Rick's pretty much standing there with the gun <laughs> still smoking. <laughs> yeah, basically. And he's like, "Oh, what happened here?" Yeah. And then they kind of like walk off into the sunset and they're like, there's that very famous line where it's like, "This is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship mm -hmm. or something." But that's the one element that feels a little like Deus Ex Machina-y towards the end where like I almost feel like mm -hmm. it would have been a it, I guess it takes some of the romance out of it and it would turn it into kind of a different sort of movie but to me it would almost be more interesting if like rick made that sacrifice and then he just ends up suffers the consequences, yeah, suffers yeah. The consequences at the end or something i don't know mm -hmm. there's something about that that i think would have been a little bit more but i guess the point is he was willing to he knew what he was doing it's a yeah. surprise that that mm. he doesn't he doesn't by the end yeah I'm okay with it, mostly because I just like the ending with them becoming buddies. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, it's fun. But I think it's also, it also shows Renault, yeah, yeah that he, Louis, Louis, Louis Renault, yeah. um, that he also is on a similar trajectory as Rick, so that he, at the end, becomes also yeah. somewhat elevated from his initial position, and he also shows some commitment to stick it to the Germans in a way, and right. uh, really become more of a conscientious player in this whole game of uh that they did that they have going on there um yeah so in that sense i'm not too bothered by it it does feel like the kind of thing that would occur in a real situation right. like that if, if 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 you want like if you have a an occupying force laying dead on the floor and then i can imagine that you're not gonna be too distraught over it um it, it also has me thinking of that scene where you have the the Germans, they play this song like this. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's the national anthem or just some German war song. And then the French, they start playing their uh, national anthem. They start singing over it and they kind yeah. of battle it out. And apparently like a lot of the uh, 
extras in that scene they became genuinely emotional because of the, the the meaning of that situation where they still showed some kind of protest even though they weren't actively in a in a battle with them at that very right. moment at least uh, but it does show there is even though they are unoccupied and supposedly neutral and welcoming even to the germans there was still this underlying sentiment that they were facing their enemies in that moment or that yeah, they yeah. had that they were fighting a battle that yeah that was just uh, getting them riled up and stuff it does an interesting job of victor is like kind of he comes back in at one point you you find out that like one mm. of the bar keeps at the bar is like part of the um under like underground resistance is going to these meetings and and rick knows about those but he's kind of like don't ask don't tell sort of He's trying mm -hmm. to maintain neutrality even against that. But then there is like there's approval from him about the about the that scene where they sing. He kind of a, he gets the piano player to like play with the, the French tune or he he approves of that. Mm -hmm. And then he gets shut down for it. The Germans come in afterwards and are like, yeah, you know, so that's the first little hint of him kind of like starting to to break some kind of neutrality i mm -hmm. think a little bit and and reveal you know tip his hand yeah i was only, i wasn't sure why that would warrant his bar being closed like is there some kind of rule against it seems it doesn't seem like he broke any law or anything for a neutral supposedly neutral place my my impression was yeah. that he they were doing it they were doing it out of spite against him like mm. after that like they just come in and shut him down for illegal gambling oh, which yeah, they know yeah. has been going on there for however long mm -hmm. so they're just like they are annoyed that he let that happen mm. so they come in and just find an excuse to yeah. to close it down or whatever there's also there's another thing that i wasn't sure about uh when it comes to rick's true nature so to say is that there's this moment where he shows he walks there's some guy gambling and he walks up to him and he says like oh bet on 22 and then do it again and he walks away with a lot of money and then there's a woman uh his wife or girlfriend who comes to thank rick for helping them and this this implication that he's subtly financing people to either escape or buy like right. the, the, the visa or whatever but that i think that happened before even the scene we just talked about with the that that's before like all the other stuff is set into motion like it's suggested that maybe rick's he's been, been doing that yeah like little right. bits and pieces like he still has his conscience somewhere that yeah occasionally strikes him and that uh, leads to him helping out some of his customers but um well and which I again think... would hint that uh, just that he has been a true yeah. like, fighter for the underdog uh, beneath it all and the whole time but yeah I think that's the real revelation there is like going into the beginning, you're kind of like, oh, maybe he is truly, you know, just like he just doesn't care. And but then you over time, you realize that he wasn't and maybe isn't. This is more of just like an affect or cynicism brought on by his heart being broken in Paris by Ilsa. And and, you know, he kind of chooses to just wallow in his own hmm. despair and not care because of that. I think there's an interesting connection there too between that effect that it has on him and his motivation towards the end of like sending Ilsa off with Victor because 
there's this dynamic where he's like, my heart was broken by Ilsa, and that brought about just like lack of motivation, inability to participate in this mm. thing. Like I became this like neutral, cynical character because of that. And there's a sense in which like he's he doesn't want to do that to Victor. He like is sending her off with Victor because his motivation is oh, like, yeah, well, yeah. you know, he will be more effective if you're there with him, like alongside him, which I think is is kind of an an interesting dynamic. But mm -hmm. the the love story aspect of this movie to me is an interesting one because that's yeah. a part that's a part of it that's a very classic film thing too, where it's just like these types of love stories don't exist that much anymore. Where you know it's just about like you have this epic wartime love story. Yeah, yeah. Now it's just oh, we met on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also just about like the the tension between them of like wanting to be together, but that's never fulfilled. There's no like, there's really nothing going on besides just like, oh, we used to be together. We're seeing each other again mm -hmm. now. I don't know. There's it's also only later the revelation that Ilza had been married all along, but that she, when she yeah. met Rick in Paris, she thought Victor was dead. And then it turned out he wasn't. And so yeah. that's when she went or left Rick, uh, in the cold, so to say. Uh, so yeah, that, that's an that's an aspect that I'd forgotten about. That kind of uh, makes it maybe more easier to swallow instead of, oh, I was married but I cheated, or right. uh, I just left you for no reason and then got married to someone else. But w what did you think of the whole flashback scene? Because I'm, I'm that's also like a part of the movie that I feel a little right. bit conflicted about. I'm not too bothered by it. I mean, it's definitely mm -hmm. like it's definitely I'm part of the it brings on more of the like melodrama of the yeah the one thing i wasn't sure about if it revealed anything new like i'm trying to think of it now like what what exactly did the f flashback show that we that wasn't already set up through implications yeah before then right up up until the flashback scene like one thing i really liked how it had so much um it's something i liked about the whole movie basically that it's it, it really has this less is more kind yes. of thing going on where it it shows you very limited locations. It shows very little about the characters themselves. It's all implied history, implied world building, and it's very effective. And then suddenly you get this pretty prolonged, like actual flashback scene in which right. you see pretty much exactly what had already been sort of explained to us. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can I can definitely see that argument. I think I think it doesn't bother me too much in part because I think there is some redundancy in that scene. But one of the reasons it works for me is because it opens up new questions and, and new mystery in some ways where you realize like she's left him, but now you're not sure why. And, mm, yeah. you know, there's still a lot of unanswered questions that are coming after that. So I don't know. Yeah, it does break the sort of bottle episode nature of the story where it's all kind of taking place in this one bar and you know you're just getting mm -hmm. yeah i don't know for some reason those that scene where it's like raining in paris were the images that like stuck in my mind the most from the first time mm -hmm. i watched it so something about that scene visually uh really stuck in my head so i don't know if that yeah. means i liked it or not but hmm. yeah that was probably the most um impactful moments like the whole scene before it with them just being romantic that 
that to me felt a little sappy and uh, as you said redundant but uh, uh yeah i guess the the conclusion of that does create that added mystery of like what happened why did she leave yeah. and so yeah um, i guess it does uh, show some information after all i think there's something intriguing too about you see rick a little bit in his he comes across differently in that scene where mm. he's not so like he's not the same guy he is in Casablanca. And I think that's a little interesting too. You get a glimpse of that and then you're like, Oh, he wasn't all like, he wasn't always like this. This is, this is a, yeah, this is something that was brought about by an event in his life or that he chose, you know, he mm. kind of is choosing to, um, isolate yep. himself and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, one other thing I also uh, that really stuck with me this time was the thinking of what this story would be like from Victor's perspective. Because it really now, it's, yeah. as it stands, it's really Rick's story. He gets to relive his old romance, but it's it is kind of awkward when it feels like uh, when you really think about Victor's perspective in all this, who's just kind of standing on the side and watching it happen, more or less. He's a very good sport about it because <laughs> he kind of at some point, it, I think it's implied that he kind of like he he, he asked Ilsa, he's like, um, you know, you must have been lonely when mm. you were when I was away in, and you were in Paris. And he, he kind of implying that maybe he understands what was going on or something. Yeah, he sensed uh, there was something up. Or yes. Something <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's that that would be an interesting uh, reframing of the story. Or it could have been included in this one also if if, uh, if there was a bit more interaction between him and Rick or uh, like they don't yeah. really get to have their the talk with each other about their shared interest. But um, as, at least as far as I can remember. But, yeah, I don't. If they do, it's very glancing and, and yeah. brief. Yeah, I, I guess that's a general tendency that tends to happen with these love triangle stories. That that's one one end of the triangle always gets left out a little bit. Yeah, it's it's, it's hard to have a a real love triangle where you humanize all of the different ends of it. In a lot of ways, I think Victor too is kind of like he is mostly this like opposite. He's kind of the opposite of Rick. He's like just this idealistic, you know he's fighting for the war he's very committed to that he's going to do it at all all cost and it's almost like rick is being torn between like do i do the right thing or do i do the selfish thing or or, or do i do yeah. the selfish thing but it's like it's the selfish thing but it's the motivation of love too which makes you know like makes it mm. makes it a little bit more there's those scenes where like I don't know. It 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 gets more complicated. Yeah, you kind of wonder: is their love the true love that needs right. to yes. exist? Yeah, and that's where I think it's playing with the the genre of. of I think that's what I was trying to get at earlier that I was having trouble mm. articulating. But that's where I think it's playing with the genre of romance in kind of an interesting way, mm. where you're like within the typical romance, you're like, well, the love story is 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 kind of the ultimate ideal, and everything else is kind of supposed to fall at the wayside of that and you're like yeah this is the good L love is mm -hmm. the one good true motivation 
you know, for the yeah. character's actions in this story. But then it ends up like kind of not really being the case. I mean, you could argue that he's like choosing what he thinks is best for her because he loves her potentially as well. The one way in which Victor tips his hand of like sacrificing his effectiveness is there is that moment where he's like, you guys go off together and I'll stay and find my own way out. So mm -hmm. he does have that moment of being like, you know, I'm going to make a sacrifice for love. But then that ends up, you know, not, not yeah. being the case. But Casablanca, I think it's a good film. I think it's entertaining. I enjoyed mm -hmm. both times I watched it. As far as I remember, you know, I think it's shot well. The The cinematographer is the same cinematographer who shot The Maltese Falcon, uh, which I also really like the way it, that it film is shot. And yeah, no, I think, I think it to some, like, I don't know. I definitely, I definitely think it deserves its reputation as a classic, whether or not mm -hmm. it's truly the greatest screenplay of all time. I'm not sure. I think that that might be a little mm -hmm. bit more up for debate that in those terms, yeah. I think that's a situation where it was influential and it should hold a certain place as like being a good example of mm -hmm. writing in a certain way. Uh, a certain type of writing and it it was probably very influential down the line in in the development yeah. of like screenplay conventions overall um but i think like if you were to run it head to get head to head against many screenplays that have come since then i would probably mm -hmm. pick more recent ones over this yeah yeah me too probably but yeah i agree with all the other stuff and i think it's generally just um it, it's good to know the foundations that everything else is built on. And it's it's interesting to be able to watch a film like this and step back into the context of a previous time and see, you know, the those elements that might appear a little different to us now because of how they were framed, you mm -hmm. know, within the assumptions of the time and those kinds of things worth definitely worth the watch in my opinion thank you all for listening if you enjoy the show be sure to check us out on our creator-owned streaming service nebula where you can experience our podcast ad free listen to all of our episodes a week early and get access to monthly bonus episodes that aren't available anywhere else on nebula we for example covered the latest dr strange movie sam mendes's 1917 stanley kubrick's science fiction masterpiece 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Nicholas Whiting reference Drive. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula is by signing up for CuriosityStream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more, visit curiositystream.com slash cinemaofmeaning, or check out the link in the show notes. And we'll see you again next time. <laughs>